You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning. I'm Michael Mann of the Archdiocese of Chicago's radio TV office. I'm delighted to be with you on this July 4th holiday. Every Saturday, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. We begin our program today with a segment from The Voice of Charity, where they discuss the long-standing relationship between Catholic Charities and Loyola University, and specifically in the area of social work. Here's a highlight of that conversation. Today we have two two really incredible folks, um, partners of ours and just experts in their field. We have Dr. Maria Vidal de Hames and Dr. Mauricio Cifuentes. They're each known internationally for their significant contributions to multicultural social work, social welfare policy, migration policy, and education. Dr. Vidal de Hames is a member of Catholic Charities Board of Advisors. She's a PhD from Ohio University and a master's degree from the University of Chicago. She came to Loyola University in 1992 and is now professor director for Loyola University Centers for Immigrant and Refugee Accompaniment, also known as CIRA. Maria is also director of the Migration Studies Program, which is a subspecialization of the social work program. In this role, Maria coordinates a migration-focused international social service exchange between Loyola University, Catholic Charities, the Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City, and the Jesuit Migrant Services of Mexico. This is an incredible partnership, um, and Maria has received numerous professional awards, including being named Loyola University's Faculty Member of the Year in 2017 and a Distinguished Member of the Catholic Charities Board of Advisors also in 2017. She's done just a few amazing things. (laughs) (laughs) And her colleague, Dr. Mauricio Cifuentes, is a clinical assistant professor at Loyola, and he is coordinator of the online bilingual master's in social work program. Excuse me. Dr. Cifuentes received a Juris Doctor degree from Pontifica Universidad Javeriana in Bogota, Colombia. He practiced and taught labor law in Bogota for 20 years before moving to the United States to pursue a career in social work. Dr. Cifuentes earned a PhD and a master's degree in social work at Loyola University Chicago upon his arrival. Additionally, he obtained a certificate in clinical practice with LGBT individuals and their families from the Chicago Center for Family Health. During his career, Mauricio has taught social work at the doctoral, master, and bachelor levels at the Institute for Clinical Social Work at Loyola University Chicago and at Augsburg University. I mean, this, <laughs> I don't know what to say. This is something else. Thank you. Welcome, Mario, Maria, excuse me, and Mauricio. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. So, Maria, we're going to start with you. There's so many facets to social work, um, and, and we talk a lot about all those different facets on this show when we intersect with our programs. Can you maybe start with the partnership Catholic Charities has with you in the Ibero program? What are the program goals, and how does the Ibero program sort of fit within your migration studies subspecialty? Sure. I'd love to talk about this program. It's one of my favorites. Um, So this program is in its 13th year, and uh, over these 13 years, I think we've had nearly 300 students um, that have participated in this two-way internship exchange program. 
Um, as you mentioned, the Ibero program is a result of a partnership between Catholic Charities, Loyola University, and a couple of our um, Mexican sister Jesuit um, institutions of higher education, the Universidad Iberoamericana of Mexico City and Iberoamericana Puebla. Um, so the way that the internship works is that Catholic Charities provides a social service placement for the Iberoamericana students um, during the academic terms of the fall, spring, and even summer sessions. So those students from um, those universities will come and then they, they work in the uh, various Catholic Charities programs um, and provide culturally informed and bilingual services that support the work of Catholic Charities. Um, then Loyola includes the Iberoamericana students in our weekly migration seminar, so then they're becoming more informed about U.S. immigration policy and U.S. social welfare policies that complements the work that they do at Catholic Charities or puts it in a broader context. And then they also participate in monthly reflection sessions with our chaplain, um, Father Jerry Overbeck. In turn, the, um, the Iberoamericana universities in Mexico um, support our students who do their field placements, both at the bachelor's and master's level, our social work students, um, in some of the programs of Jesuit Migrant Services in Mexico. And um, it provides a, a opportunity for our respective students to apply classroom knowledge to real-life situations that transcend borders. Um, and they facilitate them learning about social work practice or human service practices in different contexts and different ways that, that we attend to migrants at different stages of the, their migration um, trajectory. You know, uh, Maria, it's so interesting because I've had the sort of blessing, I guess, to be able to see kind of all of this unfold in terms of the Ibero students working in our programs and just how crucial they are to being able to to help us really be able to provide um, bicultural, bilingual services. And then also many of my colleagues, as they were getting their master's in social work at Loyola, um, participated in the migration studies subspecialty and were sort of able to, to move that you know, take that what they've learned there and then bring that back. You know, in in maybe in our, our last um, minute here, I'm going to turn to Bridge and she can start with the next question, but we're going to need to come back after the break with it. Well, I'm just curious about this context you mentioned. Everything is contextual and uh, you both have been teaching social work for such a long time. Can you share with us the shifts that have taken place in how you teach social welfare policy and migration studies? We certainly have had um, tremendous shifts in the last uh, decade, a couple of decades, about what's um, particularly in the area of migration. Um, that it's really certainly one of the most pressing challenges of our generation, um, particularly as we're seeing more and more uh, displacement and forced migration. In the past, um, migration scholars have drawn clear distinctions between economic migrants and refugees, um, and certainly legal and political distinctions exist. But the reality and circumstances that impel contemporary migration have become much more multi-factor uh, in nature, such as a combination of extreme poverty and insecurity due to direct or generalized violence. And they don't readily lend themselves to categories of immigration that we've used for decades. So right. we really are looking more complexly at the notion of migration. So today what we're seeing is that we have more international migrants um, 
more more now than any other time in our history with um, about 275 million persons worldwide living outside of their country of birth. And this is over a 51 million percent increase since 2010. So we can see how it's been escalating quickly in the last decade. And so while migration presents a, a chance for folks to improve their life circumstances, it also poses a series of risks for migrants, particularly those who are internally displaced and can't count on the protection of their government, mm-hmm. and those irregular migrants who move outside of the regulatory norms of states. And one of the areas where we see the most um, international migration in, in this hemisphere is a, in, through the Mexican Migration Corridor which is the most popular bilateral migration path in the world. Um, we mentioned that we've had the, the project with Catholic Charities and Iberoamericana for, uh, for 13, actually, I guess our 13th year, mm-hmm. but for about 15 years or so, we've been working with um, Jesuit Migrant Services of North and Central America. So that's allowed us to have a direct view of the changes in the migration patterns. And what we've witnessed is, that the composition of migration flows have undergone substantial changes. We're seeing an increasing incorporation of women, where before it was more men migrating for work, but women now, indigenous people, and children. Um, and so the, the, the populations of origin, transit, and destination of these flows have also changed significantly. And we've seen the incorporation of organized crime and, and MADAs um, that the the migrants um, are victim to in their countries of origin, and often that's why they're impelling the the migration, right? They're leaving because of fear, but then they're also victimized along the route. And what we see is a mix of compassion and concern also contrasted with indifference to fear and hostility that migrants face by along the journey and then also um, uh, in their attempts to enter for some in the United States. Um, and so we've seen um, that, you know, because of this fear of crime um, and concern with crime, that migrants themselves have been, the, the fear has been generalized to them, and we've seen really a criminalization of migrants um, in yeah. recent years. And that's been very, very troubling. And, and we've seen then a process of thickening the border where we've tried to externalize the U.S. border through policies such as migrant protection protocols, the zero tolerance policy and metering at the border, which has really undermined our asylum policies. Yeah. And then the threats families are feeling now with the interiorizing of the border with our um, increased immigration enforcement in the interior of the country, such as workplace raids, detentions, and deportations. So those are some of like the broad transformations we've seen in the last two decades. It's incredible. I think one of the things that strikes me as you're talking is how critical both being culturally competent, bilingual, understanding trauma, like what we would right. expect from our social workers um, is just so much more than, than maybe we ever have. And um, we're very interested in the bilingual master's in social work program that you lead. It's the only one of its kind in the U.S. So can you tell us a little bit about how Loyola came to offer this and why it's important? Absolutely. Well, the, the, it was like a perfect storm. Maria was describing to you and your listeners like the new challenges we are facing in, in the field of migration. And Loyola, uh, given its uh, Jesuit uh, charisma, 
is very much into uh, working and uh, making of this a better world for everyone, and especially for those in the, with the greatest needs. And immigrants are certainly one of those groups. So the university was extremely interested in providing uh, some very specific, concrete ways to reach out and to be responsive to the realities of those immigrants. And we also were very fortunate in the School of Social Work of having someone like Maria, who for many, many, many years have been doing this kind of work and planting seeds and uh, growing flowers uh, in the field of migration. And also we had a new dean who was coming from the Southwest, and very interestingly, he's not a Latinx person. He's, he's from India, but in his professional career, he had been always very involved with the Latinx communities and had the dream of one day being able to develop a specific formation program for uh, social workers serving the Latinx immigrant and refugee communities. So that was like the perfect storm for the university to say, okay, we really want to move forward with a specific program, a master's program uh, serving these, these communities. So that's how the program came to happen. Um, the program, as, as you were mentioning, tries to be as responsive as possible to the needs and the realities of Latinx immigrants and refugees. The program is mostly, um, uh, it, it is a bilingual program. So what we want is to be aware that most of those immigrants and refugees who are Latinx have Spanish as their main or only language of, uh, to communicate. So we really need to have providers who are not only culturally responsive, but able to transmit their emotions, their feelings, their knowledge, their expertise in the language which resonates with those communities. Um, we also tried to be um, culturally responsive in the sense that we wanted to uh, develop a program based on theories and uh, realities um, coming from authors, uh, Latin American uh, authors, who would better resonate with the realities mm. of the communities we want to serve. And also we wanted to be um, responsive to the realities of the students who want to take the program, who are people living um, in difficult circumstances many times. They don't have time, they have families and so on. So we developed this program online, but with a um, hybrid format. It is online for the most part, but we don't want to lose the personal touch. So we get together once a week in a synchronous session in which what we do is we emphasize experiential learning. Mm. So we want to uh, train uh, clinicians, people who are uh, able to work with those immigrants and refugees and sharing their expertise to uh, facilitate their having happier lives in the U.S. You know, Mauricio, I um, would like to sign up for this, but also, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> in your writings, I think you, you you were just sort of highlighting kind of that person forward approach, both with your students and also um, with the, the folks that your students will end up walking alongside. And, you know, in your writings, you often express the importance of that focusing on the strengths of every human being, no matter what their challenges are. Can you maybe elaborate on that in the 
the, in the last few minutes of our show today? Yes, and, and I think this is very, even though in the field, in the professional jargon, we use the word of the strengths and so on. For me, it is more about this connection with the God we have within ourselves, because I, I truly believe that uh, we are created by God to really uh, be happy in this world. And then we come equipped with so many strengths and gifts that God has instilled in us. So I, I believe that as professional social workers, one of our roles and, and one of the calls we have is to connect with that inner self, which is wonderful, beautiful, uh, powerful, and is guiding us to better ourselves all the time. So I believe and I realize and recognize that we have problems, we have difficulties, but I'm always kind of uh, mesmerized and shocked when I have clients in front of me sharing how difficult their lives have been and are and at the same time, they are there, able to smile and willing to move forward. Mm -hmm. So I truly believe that we have the ethical mandate, not only to deal and to see the problems, but to connect with the strengths, the gifts that we have inside as a way to overcome our limitations and difficulties. And a reminder that you can find out more about all the wonderful ministries and services of Catholic Charities and how you can help by going to catholiccharities.net. The Office for Human Dignity and Solidarity hosts a program called Fully Alive. In this month's program, they talked about two appropriate responses to the times we live in. The first response involves the principles and practices of Nonviolence Works, a nonprofit initiative to train communities to respond appropriately to differences and conflict. Let's take a listen. We have with us a couple of folks from Nonviolence Works, and uh, it's a great organization that we've been in partnership for a few years now. They um, actually have received CRS Rights Bowl um, funding from us uh, for a couple of years. And so we have Philip Bat Bradley and Larry Campbell with us. Good morning, <coughs> Philip and uh, Larry. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Ryan. Uh, Good morning, Dawn. Good morning, Ryan. How are you guys doing? Great, great. How are you guys doing? I'm doing all right. Okay. All right. Well, um, we're here to talk to you a little bit about some of the work that you do, and certainly in light of, uh, you know, the, the craziness going on in our country, um, I think your work takes on some really special meaning right now, um, helping us to learn some principles and practice of nonviolence. So why don't, we, why don't we just jump into it and tell us a little bit about what you do and how, um, how, how your practices can be really helpful today. No, uh, thank you, and that's a very uh, powerful question. Uh, and 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 thank goodness that nonviolent works. We actually work on that. Mm -hmm. But let me just thank Ryan for um, supporting us and helping us with the Rice Bowl and advocating for us as an APC. So I want to just thank you and take my hats off to you mm -hmm. for being a good partner uh, in our uh, building bridges and not building barriers. Right, but. But nonviolence, uh, actually, the principle of it comes from the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, so we are actually uh, just following instructions. Uh, how do you love your brother uh, without anger and malice and without the intent to kill him? So you can build uh, bridges and not barriers. Uh, so 
uh, I learned it from my teacher, who was James Bevel, who worked with Dr. King. He was Dr. King's chief lieutenant uh, for all of the successful campaigns that happened in the 60s. And what's interesting, all it was was the Sermon on the Mount. How do you follow those instructions that you actually live a life that you can transform people and not conform to uh, social ills? But you got to love people to do that. And so what we do, we do a training. We do a 40-hour training uh, that deals with unlearning behavior, how you learn a new behavior, and then how do you apply it. And so it takes time to, to learn it, you know, to do it. But when you do anything and practice it, you get very good at it. So nonviolent works, we do trainings. Uh, we do consultation for agencies and organizations. Uh, we uh, help people work out prevention strategies uh, that can be helpful in any environment, if it's your home or your school, because we have to start thinking, how do we apply nonviolence in all our walks of life, as a parent, as a husband, as a brother, how do we apply it? And then you'll see how you do it for social change. But if you can't be nonviolent in an interpersonal with your neighbor, it's going to be hard trying to deal with a nation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I know, and, and I was, I'm just thinking about how huge this this is right now with um, you know the all the violence we've seen in not only in Chicago but around the country. Um, if if we it, is it possible to to train so many groups and so many people to to work with with these principles that you're talking about? Yeah, uh, that's yes, absolutely. Because what's interesting, if I ask you, have you ever heard of uh, NA or AA mm-hmm. program? Sure. Have you? Uh, how many steps is it? Twelve. It's a twelve step program. Right. Uh, have, have you ever been to the program? No. Uh, do you know anyone who has gone? Yes. Do you think it'd be helpful if someone used it? Sure. Okay, have you, how many steps is it to nonviolence? Is it, is it going to be 12? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, well, not, well, no, actually, it's eight. Okay. But if, but if you don't know the steps, how could you do it? Right. True. See, so we know how to get people off drugs if we choose to, or if they choose to do that. We don't know how to get people to be nonviolent because no one knows the steps. Right. So now, you say, what are the steps? Well, it's eight steps to nonviolence. The first step is observation. You have to make an observation. But we live in a culture that says the police have a code of silence, which means they can't say what they saw. And the citizens have a no-snitch clause, which say we can't say what we saw, and silence equals death. So the first responsibility is to, is to give people the courage to say they saw something in yourself, in other people. And then step two is called do an investigation, ask questions. Because what you see may not be accurate unless you ask a series of questions. So even violence always start off, I see something, and then I get angry. Well, seeing something and getting angry doesn't solve anything. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, it adds to violence, and it could perpetuate violence. Because seeing it ain't a, is not enough. You have to ask some serious questions and get answers to your questions, not just shouting out and being angry. Then step three is check your motive. So if you see what you see, you ask some questions, how does it make you feel? But you can't be moved on anger, resentment, hatred, because that's the wrong answer to solving this problem. So you have to overcome that. So then you go to step four called make a recommendation. What would be the accurate answer to solve the problem? What recommendations have any protesters put up? What are the actual recommendations that we should follow? But 
what we should be arguing about is not what we saw. We should be arguing about that they're not fulfilling our recommendations of bringing social change. Uh, and that's what we're not arguing about. We don't know what the recommendations are. When they can't hear your recommendation, then you have to go to step five, education. You have to educate people because they may not see things the way you see it, but education may help them see it. Mm-hmm. Then after you educate them, they still don't get it. Don't kill them yet. <laughs> we like killing things we don't understand. Sure. Uh, so then you're going to demonstration. Then you have to show them the behavior you're talking about in spite of their behavior. So by the time you do a demonstration of any sort, you have seen the problem, you have asked intelligent questions, you got correct motive for solving the problem, you have put forth a recommendation, you've tried to educate the people, now we must go demonstrate. Now, from a demonstration, a natural thing is going to happen called confrontation. So confrontation is one of the steps in nonviolence, but that's step seven. So you don't go from I see something, I'm about to confront you, that's violence. Mm -hmm. You can't... Say, I see something, I ask you some questions, you hurt my feelings, I'm about to confront you. That's violence. You have to go through a series of steps to have nonviolent discipline. So then step eight is called reconciliation. So even after the confrontation, we only confronted it for the purpose to reconcile the problem. And these are the same identical steps that, that uh, Jesus would do when he go to a village or a town. He will go make an observation. He asks a series of questions. He always checks his heart. He makes recommendations. He tried to educate people. He demonstrated. Confrontations broke out, and he ended with reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And, and Dr. King did the same thing. James Bevel did the same thing. Gandhi did the same thing. And we have to do the same thing. And we can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But we have to be taught. Sure. Yeah, something that kind of strikes me as I hear each of those steps is it's, it's really showing the difference between reacting and responding. And I think you, right. you, you're naming something that, you know, all of, the, all of the movements for change that we've seen, you know, many of them have been grassroots-led and, and organic in nature, but there's always a, a strategy behind them. So, you know, the, the movements of the, of the 60s and other eras, you know, like there, there was, there were, there was a, a real analysis that happened and a reflection. And I think what also resonates in your and, and the process that you're talking about too is 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 the the, refle- the self-reflection kind of coming within because we know that right. you know the roots of violence are in our own hearts, right? And and oftentimes it's when we don't have a, a place to process it or a way to kind of be aware of what's going on inside of us, that's where we act out in violence, you know, in, in big ways and in small ways. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear that yeah. kind of broken down. And you're absolutely correct because our first chapter in uh, our trainings is called it the heart of a child. How have past issues have blemished your heart, how you build your fences, how you react to life that's right in front of you? It is mm-hmm. not what people are doing presently. It's past sure. uh, issues unresolved that distorts your vision. And so that's why you have to work on yourself before you could think you could change other systems. Because it would take a, a, a you, a new, a new you to do it, not the old you, okay? Not the angry you. It's a new you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that's what the, that's what the transformation is about. It, it's getting people, and then the next phase is, what is a student to truth? How do you follow truth? And how you don't get derailed off truth? Uh, what is the truth of something? And that's what the other social issue we're dealing with, that truth can't be known. Uh, you, it's your truth versus my truth. And now uh, there's a thing called truth. There's a way you can arrive at it through synthesizing knowledge. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, what is a student? What's the role of a student? How do you follow instructions? How do you do the work? Uh, how do you get information and cooperate? Uh, how do you do that uh, scientifically? 
because many times we don't follow many of the, the protests. People just didn't follow the instructions, and that doesn't make a a, a peaceful protest. Okay, um, sure. And and so welcome to follow just follow the instructions and don't let your feelings get in the way because we're trying to change the world and not just break break windows. Okay. Hey Don. Yeah. One of the things that Phil just mentioned is so important. Unfortunately, in today's society, it always seems to be a you lose, I win, or I lose and you win. Mm -hmm. And what Phil is talking about in terms of the final step, the eighth step, is to say they're trying to win people over to understand that nonviolence is a way we all can win. And I think that's Mm -hmm. super important. That is super important. So it doesn't, you know, it's kind of a, a misconception to think that it has to be win-lose, right, is what you're saying. So right. um, why can't we all win? Why, why can't everybody turn out uh, the better for it? Um, well, see, we, we win and lose. I see, nonviolence says um, justice for all. Violence always have justice for some. Mm-hmm. Sure. See, so whenever violence is used, only some people are going to benefit. Right. When nonviolence works, all of us can benefit, okay? Mm-hmm. This is such an important time that we're having this discussion because we've seen people react um, less than appropriately in the last few weeks to some things that are happening around our nation where what what you're suggesting with nonviolence works is if, if we kind of take a step back as we see something happening and we think about it and we check our own feelings um, and, and we go through some steps, then our, our reaction wouldn't necessarily be to, um, to go to, to fighting, that, which right. seems to be what the first, the first step people go to. It's like they go from observing to fighting. So they go from step one right. to seven immediately and right. uh, without anything in between, right? Right, and that's the problem. And feel justified because you do believe you saw what you saw, but it doesn't change the questions that got to be asked and answered. It doesn't change the, your, the correct motivations you should have if you're going to change something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change the recommendations that need to be put in place for change to happen. It doesn't change the fact that people have to be educated. It doesn't change that you have to still demonstrate the right behavior in spite of your your outrage. Mm-hmm. Okay, but well, and it's right you have to confront this problem. But at the end, how do you, we reconcile? And and now we have gone from a, a, a bad problem to worse because we didn't follow any steps. Right. Um, we just followed anger, because anger is a very destructive force. Mm-hmm. But, but one well, of the things we teach in our training is the difference between, and this is the other thing, what is, what is the difference between a, a demonstration, protesters, and spectators? Because you're going to always have three types of people uh, in any dynamic. Mm-hmm. Those who have sat down and thought through the issue and, and have a position, and they know they must be disciplined to do be to be committed to that position. Protesters is things that we are against. And when you're against something, negative things can't come out of that, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, just because you're not being for something, you're against something, okay? So the negativity of being against and not being proactive could kick in. Mm-hmm. But, but then you have those who just watching on the peripheral and don't have any skin in the game. So they, they whoever wins, that's who they follow, okay? So if the police win, well, we back under police. If the citizen win, well, we follow. And that's a, a majority of people. Uh, they grab the fence. So you have to. So when you're dealing with social change, you really do need really a small core group of serious-minded people who can stick to the issue and, yes, uh, galvanize other people, but yet without those principles in place, uh, even a small band of people can't get anything done. 
Mm-hmm. Juan? Yes. You know, you can see that Phil really has some fantastic experience over many, many years working in the Chicago area and some other areas, too. We have, in the last couple of years, have um, taught in many parishes. We've taught in high schools. We've taught at uh, Loyola University. What we would like to do today, real quickly, is say to any parish that's interested in uh, having us come, um, Phil's number is 312-513-7876. And my number is 630-886-6876. And the experience has been done is when they go to the training, they are so energized and their hearts on fire they want to volunteer. Mm-hmm. And again, as you've said more than once this morning, this is a perfect storm of everything going on. We need nonviolence. So if somebody just wants to help us by volunteering, same members apply. Um, we could we could use the extra help. It's, a, it's something that needs to be done. And that's why I really appreciate when Ryan said we could come on here this morning. Sure. Um, and they could also go to your website, correct? Do you want to give us that address? Correct. Okay. The website is nonviolence, that's uh, just all capitalized and works, uh, is one word, no space, chicago.org. Nonviolenceworkschicago.org. So so they can find out all kinds of information about how to volunteer, what kind of trainings you offer, ways to donate, where their donations might go to to help, right? All of that we can see on your website. Um, So why don't you tell us, do you have some plans this summer to train people in nonviolence? Absolutely. Uh, what, there's two initiatives that we have uh, had on, on our um, things to do and been working on it. Uh, one is to call the nonviolent zones, mm-hmm. uh, where every community uh, have a, a a pocket or a population where violence is 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 prominent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the African American community, we see it as gun violence and murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other communities of ethnic groups, it may be domestic violence, it may be child abuse, but that, that still is violence. And we need to understand these zones and then put uh, trained community people who understand nonviolence uh, in collaboration and how to organize in these zones. I'll give you an example. I live in South Shore. It goes from 79th to 67th from the Lake to Stony Island. If you had nine people who was there who understood nonviolence, who could make observations, who ask questions, who have correct motivation, who makes recommendations for the group and each other, can go and educate when needed, uh, can demonstrate if, if a problem show up, six, seven people who, who at least know something can come within a one-mile radius to help negotiate or navigate a problem, and then work on resolving issues uh, institutionally. Sure. And, but without a, a, a body of people on the same page with a common mission, you can't get anything done. Uh, it just can't happen. And so and so right now there's a lot of fragmentation within non for profits organizations that don't do enough collaboration or cross training so we at least know what each other doing, let alone doing doing something of the same relevancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that fragmentation that actually doesn't help with community building, in, infrastructure building, because you need that, that type of cohesiveness. So the nonviolent zone train people to help Organize the churches that generally wouldn't come together. Organize school institutions that generally wouldn't come together. Organize businesses to help with the community that generally wouldn't come together. So you need to have glue for all these bricks. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what nonviolence is. It's the glue for the bricks. 
Our prayers and best wishes are with Philip and Larry and Nonviolence Works. Stick around. After a short break, we will hear about a second appropriate response to the times we live in. Back in a moment. It has been inspiring to see how individuals, families, and communities have found ways to help one another throughout 2020. At Catholic Charities, we usually have 35 to 40 events a year where we gather and enjoy time together in support of important programs and services while raising critical funds that allow us to respond to the growing number of people who are in need of the most basic necessities in life. Many of our events are now virtual. If you would like to be a sponsor for one of these events, please call 312-948-6864. That's 312-948-6864. Also, visit us at catholiccharities.net slash events and follow us on social media too. We so look forward to when we can resume our events in person and reconnect with our friends and partners throughout Chicagoland. For now, please consider donating to Catholic Charities so our vital work can continue. Thousands of people in Chicago count on Catholic Charities every day. Please help us help them today. Learn more at catholiccharities.net. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 950 a.m. and 930 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. This week on the Fully Alive program, two appropriate responses to the times we live in were discussed. The first response involved the principles and practices of nonviolence works a nonprofit initiative to train communities to respond appropriately to differences in conflict. The second response has to do with the gospel of life. Ray Pingoy and Don Fitzpatrick discussed the 25th anniversary of St. Pope John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae and the prophetic message he had for us today. Here's a highlight of that conversation. John Paul II came out with this gospel of life in the 90s, and uh, he was talking about the uh, the fruits of a culture of death, which are poison fruit, um, and and what he could our our culture was undergoing, and uh, how how much worse it was going to get. So let's let's just unpack that for a few minutes, Ray. Um, what 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 do you? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about what what you see in that uh, document and how it's how it's uh, it's coming to light and and what we can do. How by focusing on on the gospel of life, we might help our help our society a little bit. Yeah, first of all, I can't again, I can't believe it's already been 25 years we're celebrating the 25 uh 25th year anniversary of this gospel of life. I remember I think I was still in high school during that time <laughs> and you know, I, I just uh, hearing some some news about it I didn't get to read it until I was uh, maybe like freshman in in uh, in uh college. But it really did speak to me during that time as as a young person, sure. because uh, as we all know, the gospel just just that uh, word itself, the good news, it brings joy in your heart, sure. right? And then and then uh, John Paul II in this uh, in this, this encyclical letter, um, he he brought out that great point that there's there's this good news and and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's it's you know, and he's inviting us to build that culture, that culture of of life. Yes, to build a culture of life. Um, unfortunately, he talked about how we were 
living in a culture of death. Um, mm-hmm. And and like I said, some of the fruits that come out of that are um, are d- indeed fruit, but they're but indeed, they're yeah. but they're poison fruit or you know I, I, rotten yeah yeah I often think about um, the movie Snow White, and you had this this old lady coming to uh, Snow White's door with what looked like a beautifully packaged yeah, right. treat, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was just the prettiest, shiniest, largest, juicy-looking apple you can imagine. And Snow White b- bought in hook, line, and sinker, and the lady talked her into it with all of her wiles and, and uh, evil uh, intent. And Snow White took a bite of that apple, and then what happened? She became numb and, uh, and and went through life in a slumber until her true love came around. I mean, these these are all kind of the story that Jesus saving us, right? <laughs> right, and the enemy does that, right? He uh, makes sure that it looks right and nice, but really, in that fruit, it's a it's a rotten one, and it plants that seed within our culture. And now we're seeing more and more of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what does he talk about? Um, we're going to have to take a break in just a minute, but let's. What, what are some of the things he says are evidence of the culture of death? Well, I mean, he, he, he mentioned the many things that, uh, that you already uh, talked about in, uh, in, this, whole, uh, I, in this whole culture of, of death, where we start using each other as just mere objects to, mm-hmm. to just uh, satisfy our, our own wants and our own desires, in a sense. But the, the, the greatest thing that I saw in this, uh, one of the greatest things I saw in this encyclical is that uh, he calls us out uh, in, in uh, our responsibility to life. Yeah. It's not just for the priests. It's not just for, uh, for the bishops. It really is for us. And yeah. he calls us in this the defense and promotion of life belongs to every human being. That's all of us. Sure. And that, I mean, that just reminds us that, you know, if you're going to complain about the church, well, we're the church. Right. Can't just complain about it. Do something about it. Right. We're the church. Right. Um, and, and just like we're not just, you know, we're, we're not just a part. We're not just looking at society. We're a part of it. So mm-hmm. why, why not um, take it back and, uh, and, and behave in, in, the, in the most the, the correct ways instead of um, ways that promote a culture of death? Um, but, you know, I think he, he was talking, I mean, this is a 99 page document, so it's not, mm-hmm. it's not short, but it, but there are much longer ones, but certainly 99 pages is a, a lot to, to be talking about, um, this topic for sure. I mean, and, he, and he doesn't shy away from that big topic of abortion either. He, mm-hmm. he talks about this unspeakable crime and this is his own words, unspeakable crime of abortion sure. among the crimes against life. Abortion is particularly deplorable, he says. So he doesn't well, shy away from these things. Well, and let's and let's let's think about that for a minute. So that abortion is actually taking the life away from our most vulnerable, right? You should mm-hmm. be the most secure and the most um, taken care of when you're in your mother's womb, wouldn't wouldn't you think that that's like like the the safe place or it should be? So if if a if a baby in that situation isn't safe and secure, then when are we ever? Right. Yeah. And and wouldn't you live life a little defensively, to say the least, if you never ever feel safe? Um, and we've already ingrained in people that there really is no safe place, right? So that's I, I think that's some of the the that poison fruit that comes about mm-hmm. from from taking away what should be the safest place on earth, um, and making it a war zone, so to speak, 
Um, we talked about nonviolence principles in the last half of this this hour. Um, we're turning that womb, which should be a safe place, into a place of violence. Um, and, and that certainly isn't the way to, to solve anything, right? Um, and one of the things that Philip said in the, in, in, when the definition of violence is um, that it always, it, it promotes a lie. That's mm-hmm, when people, mm-hmm. violence happens because a That's lie it, has been yeah. promoted. Um, and so think about what, what that means. You're saying that this is not a life. This is not, this, yeah. this creature in the, in the womb is not a human being with dignity. And that's a lie. Right. And people have bought yeah. into it hook, line, and sinker. And the, the, the enemy, the, the evil one, really just clouds that. And he, he, John Paul II talks about this in paragraph 59, actually. And this is the cloudiness of it, the evil part of it, the confusion part of it, is that the acceptance of abortion, he says, signifies man's increasing incapa- uh, incapacity to distinguish good and evil. Mm-hmm. The co- confusion of it, calling... Uh, something like abortion as a woman's rights, you know, calling an abortion something that women uh, need this. Uh, we need to stand up for what's right and, and uh, let everyone know and stand with the truth that it's a killing of an innocent life, right. the most vulnerable, as you mentioned. The, U- the USCCB is asking us to focus on this this year. This this will yeah. be the theme of our Respect Life Month in October, and it will be the theme for the whole upcoming year. Um so, you know, we're hoping to educate people a little bit um, in our pews and across our archdiocese on the gospel of life and then help invite people to, to start to live it out. Um, and so some ways we're gonna, we can do that, you know, we'd, we'd really like the parishes to focus on something called Walking with Moms in Need, which we, yeah. haven't, we haven't been able to really uh, dispense that those materials yet because of everything that was going on with the lockdowns and um, and the churches being closed. But um, but there's a project out there to help our churches to recognize um, first of all what all the great things we do for people, right, and all the mm-hmm. wonderful resources that we can offer to people in need, um, especially moms in need. And if a if a woman needs something and she's a single mom or she's you know has has um, some something lacking in her household or she's she's in trouble, the, the church should be the first place she comes, right? Um, and the church should be equipped with resources and information um, that she he can point her right to, that the church can point her right to, whether it's. Um, you know, a place to live or uh, baby supplies or uh, food or education or how, how to get a, a job or, you know, daycare mm-hmm. or whatever, right? The church, right. Should, the church should be able to help with that. Um, and in a lot of cases we can, but people don't realize that they should come to the church first. They usually think the church is, too, is a judgmental place. We want people to know that the church is a loving place and, that, and we are absolutely the field hospital, Right. We should yes. be the, the place people want to come and get healed. So um, so and I think that's what John Paul II was talking about in this gospel of life was, you know, we have to we have to give people the opportunity to love life and to live it to the full. Right. That's why we call this radio program fully alive. We base it on the abundant life, living life abundantly that, um, you know, in the gospel of John, Jesus talks about he came to uh, to give life and to give it abundantly. What do you think he meant by that? 
What do you think? Yeah, it really it is an, a celebration. It's an invitation to to that gospel of life, to that fullness of life, and and uh, um, we are we are all called to build up his kingdom here on earth to to build that culture of life and you said it don we we are all called to do that um as mentioned already in the beginning it's you know it's not just our pastor's job it's not the uh those who are working for the church but really all of us mm-hmm. so if you have if you have that heart and, and maybe maybe you, you you might not even see your yourself or you might not even see a, a place for yourself to serve uh the church in this way this is this is a sign. This is a call right now for you to to um, take on that invitation um, to serve others, especially these uh, these women that are in need, uh, mm-hmm. these uh, pregnant women that are in need of of that. It, it's the whole. It, that's the beauty of it. It's the holistic approach. It's not just that we're we're uh, providing them, which is a great thing, uh, food or shelter, but really it's it's the holistic approach, body and soul, in in um just re- recognizing and and reminding them their full dignity sure right and and that Absolutely. we are there to help them and to help each other in this great uh, journey well you know and, and I'm kind of reminded of the the parable Jesus told about the sheep and the goats you know mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. on judgment day is he he's going to say to you well well you know you didn't serve me when did I not serve you well when you didn't serve the least of my my uh, brothers or my my family he didn't serve me so you know we're we're called to serve each other that jesus says that over and over again we're called to serve each other we're called to help each other um and we're not necessarily called to be comfortable and that's mm-hmm. and that's what i think is a misconception people think well um it should be easy you know jesus if i love jesus then everything should come very simply and that's not true um it wasn't easy for him <laughs> that's for sure yeah. what happened to him oh, they killed him so um hopefully we we wouldn't be be killed for for wanting to bring peace to the world and save others but but we should be trusting enough in god that we're doing his work and it's not going to be comfortable or easy so that's that's an important thing that um he, he says there right in the gospels so yes and there's growth in that uh, mm-hmm. we become we come closer and closer to to him uh, who who's the one calling us to himself right so yeah. yes it, it we really need to to be that for the world in in, in the parish as well it's a great reminder for us we need to start seeing our parishes as as as, uh, as, as our family and it really does start with with our family mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily just an individual thing that we do individually serving but really as a family we serve Right, and in the Gospel of Life, John Paul II calls upon the family as the sanctuary of life, Absolutely. and so he calls the parents, he calls each member of the family to do their part in this, to start recognizing themselves, uh, their family, um, in his or her own personhood. Yeah, it's, it really does start there, right? It really okay. starts starts there. That Gospel of Life, this education of of who they are, it starts within that family. Yes. Our thanks to Dawn and Ray for that timely conversation. Our final segment today comes from Diakonia, the program that explores the importance of deacons in the Catholic Church today. This month's show discussed the work of Emmaus Ministries. Let's take a listen. Deacon Richard Hudzik joined today with, uh, by Deacon Dave Brensick, Deacon Pete Letourneau, 
And Mr. John Blasey, uh, we're talking about Emmaus Ministries, a Chicago initiative uh, going on now 30 years of service. Uh, it's an outreach uh, of the church, uh, of the Christian church, uh, to men involved in uh, the sex trade. Um, John, just before the break, uh, and I think, Pete, you may have used the, the word yourself, but the, the phrase was, uh, you go out and you walk the streets. What What is that? Well, you know, taking it from the road to Emmaus, where we see Jesus walking alongside um, two downcast, downhearted disciples, um, to provide encouragement and to ultimately help them refocus their, their hearts and their missions. Um, we did that in a, in a metaphorical way with our men, but also literally. We have conducted street outreach for over 30 years. Um, this involves trained staff, trained volunteers, going out to areas of the city where we see folks operating, um, trying to find dates, trying to work, and then we connect with them there. Um, typically, folks have not had good experiences with authority figures, not very trusting of people who say that they'll take care of them. So it's a long process, and we'll see these guys over weeks, months, and even years uh, building their relationship so that they can see we actually want to see them exit this life and uh, rebuild to a life of wholeness. Your, your initiative is to establish credibility, I suppose, that uh, authenticity, that you're just not here to, you're not another manipulator. Now, you've got a... Uh, a, uh, a URL for your, your website that I think is admirable and is probably a, a gem of a, a URL that you could sell for significant dollars, but it's the great the URL for uh, Emmaus uh, Ministries uh, is streets.org. Uh, that's right. That's just, uh, I don't know, I think, I think you got some money there that somebody else must want that, but... Um, Kudos, I guess, to John Green back in the day. Is that, uh, uh, or whoever grabbed it? Um, but uh, I, yeah, it, it was it was a member of our of our team of elders who did it back in the day, and just it's indicative of our longevity. You know that we've been here serving consistently um, back in the day when you could get a one word uh, URL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, and I I make mention of that just because I'm I'm envious of it, but. Uh, but also, it's it's a very nicely designed uh, website, and there's there's lots of information on there that uh, people can who are listening who are uh, interested in, in further information. That's a great place to go. Um, so, uh, one of the things on there is that I thought this was uh, some some creative, uh, some thoughtful uh, work as to. If I ask the question, what is the work of Emmaus Ministries, I think the answer you're going to give me is, is threefold. It's awareness and prevention, outreach, and reinvestment. Does that, does that work for you in, in terms of uh, what you're about? That, that, uh, that essentially encapsulates what we're doing. Um, it's, I think, first of all, when we think about um, men and boys involved in this life, uh, it's, it's certainly there's... Um, doesn't ring true. You know, we are used to only hearing about women, and that happens throughout society and, and then in law enforcement, throughout schools, so places that folks who would generally recognize uh, a female who is being exploited wouldn't recognize a male. 
But yet you yeah. uh, you gave the statistic of thirty six percent are male in this in this uh, trade. Correct, correct. That's a nationwide study. We've also seen studies in major metro areas of being up to fifty percent are male. Wow. Um, the reality is there's a lot of lonely people, um, and then there's a lot of people seeking um, to survive at any cost. Um, when we talk about outreach, again, these are typically folks who've endured a lot of trauma in their life. Um, the reality of homelessness, um, drug addiction, um, being involved in the foster care system or any kind of substitutionary care is prevalent in the majority, and I'm talking about the vast majority of people that we serve. So these are folks who are out on the street just looking to survive, and they're approached by people who will, you know, pay for them. Mm -hmm. uh, Pete, uh, you've been involved for uh, a handful of years, uh, would you say since 2015? That is correct. What do you see? What do you... Uh, Where's your faith journey in this? Uh, what's, what, what's, what's the gospel here? Well, the, the gospel is, and I think um, one of the big takeaways from my experience doing outreach is that it's a truly a ministry of presence, meaning um, what Emmaus does for these men is they're a constant in their life. So no matter where they might be, um, what challenges or hardships they're going through, they know they can always circle back to Emmaus and have an empathetic ear of somebody on either the other side of the phone or at the table. That was also a great um, aspect of Emmaus is they always bring men together to the table to enjoy a meal. Because sometimes that might be the, the only meal that they sit down and eat as, lack of a better word, family. Um, one of the things that I did during the four years I've been involved with Emmaus is for about a year, I was a mentor to one of their clients. His name was Juan, and he had come into the Catholic Church the Easter prior, and kind of the objective of mentoring him was to keep him connected to his faith. And Juan, like many of these men, uh, go through it. It's a really tumultuous lifestyle where they'll have a housing source, like at some point he was living with his sister, but then has a fallout with one of the family members, is pushed back down the street and becomes homeless. And we would meet on a weekly basis at St. Vincent de Paul Church on the campus of DePaul University um, for Mass, and then we would go across the street and we would have breakfast. And because that was, for me, just, you know, really, you know, as Pope Francis would say, smelling the sheep, getting out there and truly embracing those that are are on hard times, but yet, you know, we know that at the core of our faith is that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Here is a reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. We have daily Masses and Sunday Masses in English, Spanish, and Polish. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel youtube.com slash catholicchicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m., and Polevision for televising our Polish language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. 
I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Weekend Review. Have a happy and safe July 4th weekend. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Weekend Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.